0: Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is the top rated podcast for slow fashion founders. Whether you're thinking about launching a slow fashion brand, scaling an existing clothing brand, or making a brand more environmentally friendly, we have you covered. I'm your host, Selena Ho, the founder and CEO of Recloseted. Each week, I'm sharing my proven strategies or interviewing industry experts. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Recloseted Radio. In this episode, I sit down with George from the Changing Markets Foundation, and he was a speaker and panelist at the Global Fashion Summit. After hearing him talk about irresponsible corporate behaviors, I knew I had to have him on the podcast. And so, George is a campaign manager at the Changing Markets Foundation, which is a Dutch nonprofit formed to accelerate solutions to sustainability challenges by leveraging the power of markets. Much of their work involves exposing irresponsible corporate behavior, and George has worked across the fashion, fisheries, food, and plastic sectors pushing for corporate accountability. He leads the organization's Fossil Fashion Campaign, exposing the industry's environmentally disastrous reliance on fossil fuels during the climate crisis. George is also a board member of the Conscious Advertising Network. This was a really great conversation, but before we dive in, I just wanted to quickly say that we recently released our 60-minute consulting intensives with myself the reason we launched this new product was because we found that a lot of brands were struggling with certain challenges and roadblocks and they just needed a strategy and a roadmap to be well on their way again and so this is perfect for you if you have an upcoming launch for a collection and you want to run by your strategy with me or if you're currently struggling with sales and figuring out how to recession-proof your business we can definitely sit down chat through that work it out or if there's just any other challenges under the sun that you're dealing with and you want my advice, you can book our consulting intensives. And for the next week or so, we are offering 10% off. So if you use code DOGOOD, you will get 10% off at checkout. To get more information on the consulting intensives and to book your session, just visit www.weclawstoday.com CI. This will also be in the show notes. And then at checkout, use code DOGOOD for 10% off. Don't snooze because we aren't going to be offering this discount for very long. And if you want to purchase your session right now and then use it in the coming months, that's totally fine. So long as you use it before the end of this year, you'll be all good. If you have any questions about the consulting intensives and wonder if it's a fit for you, feel free to send us a DM at Recloseted on Instagram Or you can also email us at hello at reclosited.com. And now let's dive into this interview with George. Welcome to Recloseted Radio, George. I'm so excited to have you on. And to kick things off, can you please introduce yourself and give us a quick overview of your career?
1: Yeah, my name is George Harding-Rolls. I'm campaign manager at the Changing Markets Foundation. I've worked in the sustainability space for about 10 years, starting off when I used to live out in Beijing. And I worked for a law firm in the kind of social responsibility department for a human rights lawyer. And then that really gave me a taste of what I wanted to do, what I was feeling passionate about. So I tried to kind of forge a career around sustainability Since then, working for a number of different NGOs in that time, sometimes closer to businesses and sometimes more critical of of businesses, which is um, where I find myself now with Changing Markets.
0: Love it. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Changing Markets Foundation?
1: Sure. So we are a Dutch non-profit. We focus on uh, exposing corporate irresponsibility around key climate and sustainability challenges. So I work most closely on the fashion campaign as well as our plastics campaign but we have a variety of different ones around food and fisheries and oftentimes we find they kind of interconnect with each other as is as is the case with um, so many different sustainability challenges but we work in partnership with you know leading researchers and investigators other NGOs sometimes businesses academics scientists all to try and shift the market away from current status quo unsustainable way of doing things towards a more sustainable future hopefully
0: yeah love it and can you tell us a little bit more about what your role entails as a campaign manager like what does that look like
1: yeah i liken it to being like the spider at the center of a web maybe that's a slightly sinister metaphor but it's a a nice one (laughs) (laughs) where we are constantly in the process of commissioning new research managing investigations managing that research Working with designers, working with media agencies, working with journalists, businesses, policymakers to kind of pull the campaign together, and kind of keeping your role at the centre of that web is to sort of keep it going in the in the right direction. All that information is fed back into you, and then you decide what the strategy is and and take it in the new direction. So we we're a very small core team of, of full-time staff, but we work with it that is kind of deceptive because we work with a much bigger ecosystem, really. It's probably a less sinister way of saying it than Spider's Web, ecosystem of, of experts. And that is why our work is so effective.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we are talking a lot about sustainability today. And I wanted to frame your definition before we dived in, because I know you must have been talking to so many different stakeholders and with all your experience in the industry, that definition has probably changed over the years. But what is it currently for you? Like, what does that word mean?
1: So I always try to stick to a broad idea of sustainability, maybe not so much a definition of about staying within planetary means. Uh, whilst providing for what humanity needs, and and not like overshooting what we need for, to keep those natural systems in in balance, and I think that encapsulates the idea of social justice as well as um, protecting biodiversity and staying yeah staying within the means of kind of there, there's a, there's a sort of three horsemen of the climate apocalypse, which I have recently started talking about quite quite a lot: overconsumption, imperialism, and extractivism, and I think. When we think about the definition of sustainability, we have to have those three things in mind as what we're trying to counter with the movement for sustainability, because a lot of sustainability efforts from businesses are focused on like moving towards a sustainable world and not enough about what are we moving away from. And I think the campaigners tend to see it as we're moving away from extractivism, away from imperialism and away from overconsumption. And those two can work in harmony and do work in harmony.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I have a very similar framework where it's like, how can we exist? How can we build businesses? But also, how can we not harm the planet? And so building on top of that, do you think sustainable business or sustainable brands is actually a thing? Or do you think that's just not possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question on this panel in in Copenhagen last week. that That was the theme of the panel. It's a hard question to answer. Because I would never want to, I think when you look at the system level, like the wider fashion system like that is certainly not sustainable and not headed in the right direction. But within that, there are some very good examples of brands doing things the right way. The tricky thing is when you come back to that other element of the definition of sustainability, which is about like human, like humanities flourishing, like providing a flourishing environment for humanity. Can those small brands that are doing things in a really genuine, authentic, sustainable way, are they able to provide, What you know, say we would get rid of all the really bad brands and just have those smaller ones. If they were to scale up, would they not be just as bad? I think that's one of the, Interesting elements of any environmental impact assessment stuff is that it can be sustainable today and then tomorrow it's not because you've scaled up production. So yes, there are sustainable brands exist within the current paradigm, but as soon as you change the parameters of that, it could very easily go wrong. So it's a constant and evolving target.
0: Yeah, it's a very fine and delicate balance and dance to your point. And I really liked at the summit how there was this discussion around sustainability being a journey. It's not an endpoint. You're not just all of a sudden sustainable and you're sustainable forever. It's something you continually work on. So. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that you're in the fashion and the plastic space. But can you speak a little bit more about the fossil fashion campaign? I found that really, really enlightening. And can you shed some light as to how the fashion industry relies on fossil fuels? Because some folks might not be aware.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people aren't aware about it. We started this campaign off to early two thousand, early twenty twenty one. It really came off the back of a lot of our research into the plastic sector, in particularly the relationships between fossil fuel companies, oil and gas companies, and plastic production. It's a huge source of future revenue for fossil fuel companies, and they're really kind of pinning their future growth on plastics, petrochemicals, and fifteen percent of plastics is synthetic fibres. Those goes into all go into all applications. So it could be like homeware, but mostly it's um it's textiles for clothing. And we did a lot of looking into the data to establish the correlation between the rise of fossil fuel-based fibers. So that's mostly polyester, but it's also things like acrylic, things like nylon, et cetera. How the proliferation of that area of fibres has really gone alongside the growth of fast fashion. So the year 2000 was the time that polyester undercut cotton as um, it became cheaper than cotton. And it also um, became the more dominant fibre in terms of world production. And since then, it's just skyrocketed. So we're at a place now where 69% of all fibre production is synthetic, and that will rise to 73% by 2030, of which 85% will be polyester so yeah it's it's hard to envisage without like you know without looking at it graphically but it really is the if you look at the natural fibers as well they've kind of plateaued more or less some have gone up some have gone down wool has gone down and it is the the huge overproduction that we're seeing in the fashion sector we are consuming 60% more clothing than we were 15 years ago, and that trajectory is looks kind of that it's going to continue. So we're heading to this place of massive overproduction of clothing, massive overconsumption of clothing. And what we're saying is if you stripped out synthetic fibers from that, stripped out oil and gas based clothing from that, which I think people don't really understand that their clothing is made from oil and gas. If you take that out, then you really start to address some of the fundamental enablers of the fast fashion model. So there's lots of things that go into that mix. There's the synthetic fibers, as well as like cheap labor, as well as a kind of e-commerce and, and the ease that we can buy new clothing. But... A huge part of what makes fashion able to be so cheap right now is the overabundance of of cheap fossil fuel based fibers.
0: Yeah. And so, is the takeaway here to be mindful of your production, first of all? And then, secondly, for brands to choose better materials. And I know a lot of the listeners often ask, like, what's the best thing? Is it like cotton? And, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. But what is the Changing Markets Foundation's viewpoint on materials in general?
1: It's a good question and it depends who you ask if you're talking to a brand or if you're talking to a consumer it is quite difficult to compare fibers to each other it ends up looking like a sort of apples to pears comparison and even the same fiber going into different products so going into like a sort of practically single-use t-shirt or a single-use dress that you wear very very few times versus like robust outerwear stuff that can be repaired and is, is worn a lot so it is quite difficult to make comparisons like that. But what we're what we're seeing is the use of synthetic fibres for applications that we don't think are a, a environmentally sensible use of them. So, um, if you look at the huge fast fashion brands, like the majority of their clothing is is made from polyester or has polyester in it so she the huge you know chinese giant brand that's really stormed the stormed the stage in the last couple of years both literally and figuratively they i think 92.5 percent of their clothing contains plastic so it contains polyester strip out the polyester there and make that decision not to source not to create so much material from polyester so much clothing from polyester and that that fast fashion business model cannot continue
0: Yes, 100%. And you make a good point about the application of the garment, because if we need a technical outerwear jacket, it it probably needs to be made out of some sort of Gore-Tex or some sort of polyester, but a blouse and a brand just wants to cheap out on, like that doesn't need to be made out of polyester, right? So you raise a good point. Uh, I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about microplastics and the impacts of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the scary elephant in the room that none of us can can get away from, because even if you're using it for for outerwear, you're still having microplastic shedding. So polyester is made from the same plastic, a PT, which is what plastic bottles are made from. That is, again, obviously a plastic that doesn't break down in the natural environment. We're very used to seeing images of uh, plastic bottles floating around in the sea or in nature that take hundreds, if not thousands of years to biodegrade they'll fragment down into microplastics, but also the clothing that we wear that's made from synthetics fragments down into microplastics and sheds microplastics when we wear it, when we wash it, and when it's disposed of ends up in, in landfill as, as the majority of it is at end of life. The scary thing about microplastics is that they're so small that they can get into ecosystems very easily. So they can get into the food chain either through the soils or through um, marine food chains, and they can also directly enter into our bodies. So they found microplastics of all types, and not just microfibers, but microplastics in our digestive tracts, in our blood, in animals. There's been studies showing that microplastics can cross the blood-brain barrier, and the scary thing is we're just not that we're not quite sure what they're doing when they get there? You know, are they leaching harmful chemicals? There was one study that showed that they damage cells, particularly those in a regular shape, which are microfibers in, in general. I think what concerns us from the industry and what seems convenient for an industry that is heavily reliant on synthetic fibers is that they're not being clear that the microplastic fibers are... problem as opposed to all fibers you get this myth or this line that's put about by the industry that all microfibers all all fibers shed all microfibers are problematic but that's just not what the science is saying the trajectory of the science and the science is already out is saying that microplastics over and above are more persistent in the natural environment and are the types of fibers that are entering into our body and potentially causing cell damage so once we once we establish this huge danger of microplastics, it makes things like recycled synthetics really really problematic. There's also research to show that when you make recycled polyester that sheds more microfibers, microplastics and you know the fibers are shorter and of a, a less good quality. So you know it is really this elephant in the room and it is, Also really scary how brands are not addressing this in a systemic way. And what we see is the most systemic way to do this is to limit your use of synthetic fibers.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for folks listening, it's surprising to me about the recycled polyester piece because a lot of brands are now using that almost as a greenwashing tactic that, hey, this is recycled, it's all good, but no one's talking about that elephant in the room to your point. And so your advice to brands then is to really limit the use of those materials and just think twice before they incorporate them.
1: Yeah, and that's also just one element of the problem with recycled polyester. When that so ninety nine percent of recycled polyester is made from plastic bottles, and um, we consider this to be downcycling plastic bottles, not recycling or upcycling, as, as the industry sometimes likes to say. What happens when you turn plastic bottles into clothing is you take them out of a relatively good recycling system, particularly in Europe, um, a bottle to bottle closed loop recycling system where a number of times, and there is uncertainty about what that number is, but a number of times the bottle can be recycled back into new bottles or into new packaging materials. And therefore you're uh, removing the need to take new virgin plastic or the same amount of new virgin plastic into the system. When you poach that material out and turn it into clothing, that clothing then can't be recycled further because there exists no viable, like at-scale fibre-to-fibre recycling technology for polyester. So taking all this uh, material out of a closed loop system and putting it into a linear system, and then added to that, you've got the microplastics issue. So we really just see this as a a kind of no-brainer that this is what brands shouldn't be doing. And actually, a lot of the brands will recognise that when we talk to them, they're saying, "Yeah, it's a stopgap." Um, Yet, yeah, they still have commitments. H and M has a commitment to make all their uh, synthetic or to move away from from virgin synthetic use by 2025, I believe. Even though they're the same ones recognising this is a stopgap, so that's where we kind of need to look to regulation to to step in. <laughs>
0: Yes, and so I think this is a good time to move into the greenwashing topic. So we talked a little bit about that, and you mentioned it on the panel. and so, how do you think greenwashing is being a barrier to sustainability?
1: So I like to think of it in as there being three tranches to it. So the first is the most obvious that it misleads consumers. It makes us think we're buying a green product when they really haven't provided enough information for us to say whether or not that is the case. It's lazy marketing it um, kind of capitalizes on the widespread concern that citizens have around trajectory we're on with climate change. The second is, is uncompetitive business practice. So most of the regulation around it is actually being handled by the kind of consumer and markets authority in particular countries. So in the UK, it's the competition and markets authority. So that's about protecting consumers and ensuring that business practice is competitive for example if you have a small brand that has done everything it can to trace its supply chain has done its uh, research on the materials is really trying to trying its hardest to make sure the products it's putting out there are as sustainable as it can be and also advertising that next to a big mass market brand which is making exactly the same claims on paper saying this is eco saying this is green recycled but is much cheaper then what's the consumer to do in in that instance? They both look the same, yet one of them is greenwashing and the other one is is legitimate. So that's the second part on on business practice. And then the third one, which is the hardest to kind of wrap your head around or the hardest to find tangible examples of is that greenwashing actually acts as a big smokescreen or a big placebo, making us think that change is happening when the reality is often completely the opposite. So I always think about if you looked, if you arrived on a spaceship today and looked at the fashion industry, you'd think, well, it's sustainable. You don't need to do anything about this. Like everybody's talking about it as though it's sustainable. But we know that that's not the case. And we look at the data and we look at the trends. We know we're on this trajectory to overshoot Paris by a full 50 percent. Paris, uh, the Paris climate targets for fashion by a full 50 percent. That's that part is not lying. The side that is misleading, the side that is lying is the industry. So. It's, a, it's slightly cynical work because if you remove, if you strip out all the greenwashing, um, then what you're getting is a fashion industry that's not really making any green claims at all because very few of them are able to be substantiated. But what that means is we are fully aware of the scale of change that needs to happen. And we can also say that, okay, voluntarily, the industry is not being able to solve this. It's just made up a load of fake green claims. So what we need is regulation and legislation instead.
0: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to parse that out a little bit because you said it so succinctly. So for brands, and we have a lot of SMEs that listen to the podcast that are being discouraged because to your point, they're doing all the work, they're paying more money, they are investing their time and resources. But all of a sudden, these bigger brands are greenwashing and they have to compete with them. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement? Because it can be really disencouraging.
1: Yeah, sure. So there is some really good advice from, or some really good guidelines from the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK. So they've got a set of six principles to follow to make sure that you're not making unsubstantiated green claims. They include, I mean, you can find them all in our reports and on their website, but they include including all the information you can about the life cycle of the product which includes kind of end of life and use stages, making meaningful comparisons. So one of the examples we've seen from a brand in the UK is um, saying kinder to the environment, but it's more kinder than what, kinder than a bucket of sand, kinder than what, like this doesn't mean anything. And yeah, so there's there's a set of principles that you can follow. The way that I look at it is being honest and providing as much information as you can about the limitations of your data, about the limitations of your visibility of your supply chain, essentially saying like, we have done everything we can to make sure that we can substantiate these claims with the information that we're able to gather. And yeah. And, and so for example, saying things like organic cotton t-shirts, like, well, how much of it is organic cotton? Is it hundred percent? And if so, what are you using to back up those claims? Is it just certification or have you gone further? Um, can you give the kind of supplier relations? I mean, that might be tricky from a competition perspective, but kind of brutal honesty and brutal transparency about what exactly it is that you're pinning this green claim on so that the consumer can be uh, more easily able to make the comparison. I think the danger then comes is like how much do consumers really care when it comes down to price versus eco credentials and that then is where um, I think regulation steps in again where you're able to weed out all the other claims from brands like H&M and and Boohoo and all these Zara etc you're able to weed out all those claims. So the the only greed claims allowed on the market are the ones that can fully substantiate what they're saying.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's aligned with my thoughts as well, just transparency, honesty. And I think we also leave the onus to the consumer as well, because a lot of times brands are afraid to give them too much information because from a marketing perspective, to your point, it's like, oh, they're only going to spend 10 seconds looking at this. Like, do I really want to show all this stuff? But I really think we're past that and we need to empower consumers to make the decision and the other piece too is certifications data like if you can back up what you're saying that goes way further than H&M just saying we're kinder or you know a brand is saying we're kinder so I think that definitely will help. And I want to park the regulation piece because that's definitely something I want to dive into. But I do want to give you the chance to kind of talk a little bit further about something you mentioned at the Global Fashion Summit. So you talked about how the Sustainable Apparel Coalition acted as a greenwashing tool to help Boohoo escape MP scrutiny in the Environmental Audit Committee. And so you weren't really fully able to get into it. So do you want to have the opportunity now to talk a little bit about that and express your thoughts?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to contextualise, it was like part of their escaping of MP scrutiny. So there was a a, a whole process. You know, they hired a, a very good lawyer to help them as well. Um, and they cited other organisations too. But for me, the interesting point from the Greenwashing perspective was the fact that they cited the membership of those organisations. So, yeah, for context, there was a called the Leicester Slavery Scandal. in in 2020, where Boohoo was found to be paying its garment workers in Leicester, which is a a town in England, below the minimum wage, essentially constituting slavery. And this was kind of widely recognized among the the garment workers in Leicester and, and kind of like I think Boohoo just turned a blind eye to it because they were willing to accept it, which is unacceptable. So this was then brought in front of the UK's Environmental Audit Committee, which is a group of MPs who are advised by experts who look look into these kind of things, who investigate these kind of things. When they concluded their investigation, Boohoo had submitted evidence about their progress on sustainability since 2018. And that included uh, referencing the voluntary initiatives that they had joined. So one of them was the Sustainable Power Coalition. The other one was the Microfiber Consortium. And then the third one was, so RAP, which is a, does stuff with waste. They have a SCAP initiative, which is about textiles. So that was the third one. The concerning thing in this was that MPs were duly convinced by who's joining of these initiatives and says, well, it looks like they're making a lot of change. You can say a lot about like MPs level of awareness of environmental uh, policy and environmental um, initiatives in this because because they were convinced by it. Actually, with the Sustainable Power Coalition for the first two years that you joined, I think it's now gone down to one. There are zero requirements. You can just join. So they essentially just joined this initiative and hadn't had to do anything. And then that helped them to escape MP scrutiny. And this is one of the really interesting and intricate, nuanced ways that voluntary initiatives and certification can be used for greenwashing, because say they hadn't been able to say that and hadn't been able to escape scrutiny, then there might have actually been, you know, a a punishment. There might have actually been uh, ramifications for Boohoo that could have stopped them, not stopped them in their tracks as a business, but could have put them onto a, a more responsible footing.
0: Yeah, and that's so frustrating that they didn't take accountability. And instead, they went the route of how can we escape this. And so for these organizations and for these certification companies, I think it's important that they open their doors to these fast fashion companies. And, you know, we enact change on a industry wide level. But do you have anything you would like to say to them to help them to raise the bar and raise the standards?
1: I mean I I would slightly disagree on like should we open the doors to fast fashion in these sustainability initiatives like I do think there there needs to be dialogue there needs to be room for collaboration and if they're genuinely committed to changing then there needs to be a method for doing that but. You know, and I said this on the panel, if we are allowing the likes of Boohoo into the Sustainable Power Coalition and Shein, which has just joined the textile exchange, another major sustainable fashion initiative, then surely the bar is at the floor already. I would be really annoyed if I was a brand really trying to make an effort and I'd found out that the same initiative had let Shein the back door. I just think then if we don't have some kind of standard for entry, then sustainability loses its meaning entirely. It's not to say that fast fashion doesn't have uh, room to change, but then I know, also like, I'm questioning myself in saying that because like their fundamental business models are unsustainable. And I really put it out that I believe they should be regulated out of existence. Like, I don't believe the world needs Shein. It didn't need it 10 years ago, and I don't think it needs it now. I just think, you know, it's time to call time on, on that ultra fast fashion model in particular.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree. We do need better, I would say, entry requirements and better vetting processes. And maybe if they want to join, but they're not good enough yet, here's like a three-year plan. And then once you you know, you know, check in every quarter or every year, and we'll see if you're on track. And then once you're a little bit better, then you can join. So I do think that's definitely something that these organizations can implement and think about. And so I want to dive into regulation. So This is a really big topic and I mentioned that I'm kind of back and forth between Canada and Europe right now. And I have to say that even though there's so much work to do, Europe in general is still I would say years ahead of kind of North America and other parts of the world, which is disheartening because it's still not enough even in Europe. So what role do you think government and policymakers have to play? And what do you think they should be doing right now? Because the time to act is yesterday. So how can we really, you know, how can we advance sustainable fashion?
1: Yeah. So something that we keep coming back to again in the in the sustainable fashion sector as a whole, and that includes the brands, that includes the campaigners, the experts, etc., is that the the system is kind of rigged. The system is rigged and and totally entwined with free market capitalism to produce more and more and more and for there to be zero accountability for um, environmental externalities or social externalities. When you get into a situation where the rules of the game are so heavily weighted towards the status quo, we have to question how we change the rules of the game. Currently, the rules of the game are set by big fashion. And what we're doing when we're asking for regulation is, you know, getting regulators involved in the game. So the fashion industry is one of the most lightly regulated global industries in the world for good reasons, because it's so sprawling, because it touches upon so many different industries and so many different jurisdictions. You know, like a single garment can move through five different countries before it gets to the end consumer. And if all those different countries have different regulations, that you get things tied up in, in red tape. we can kind of like park that <laughs> element because that's quite difficult to unravel. But yeah, changing the rules of the game has to be done by regulation, um, has to be done by the policymakers. And then you're, you know, I liken it to playing a game of Monopoly, there's only a certain number of outcomes and they always exist within the kind of Monopoly universe of, of, uh, you know, property acquisition, for example. If you change the rules of the game entirely of Monopoly, you end up with a completely different set of outcomes which may or may not be more equitable. It's the same in the fashion industry, like we need to fundamentally change how the system works. So yeah, this is about systemic change rather than Voluntary change, it's about mandatory change. And as you said, the time to act is yesterday. We are acting on it now, particularly in the EU, who's got the EU textile strategy, which came out in March. It will take a long time for these things to come into play. And I think that's one of the other dynamics is we are rapidly running out of time. Regulation is definitely the way to go, and the industry does recognize that, but it takes a lot of time. And so, like in the interim, what do we do?
0: <laughs> no, totally. I I really struggle with this too because. It's going to take time to implement all this change as well. And so is there any other policies that you're excited about? I know you mentioned the EU textile strategy. I know there's a lot of work in New York right now, but for brands that are in countries that aren't in Europe, what can they do? Like, do you have any advice around that as well?
1: Yeah, and this is something that we looked at a lot in our plastics work, where we assess companies not only on their environmental performance or environmental commitments, their voluntary ones, but also how willing are they to become advocates for the right kind of policy change. So, you know, there are several examples of of brands getting heavily involved in undermining policy change, and then maybe not so many good ones of brands getting you know, really behind the need to change the rules of the game, need for legislation. So yeah, I would I would challenge any brand to, and they can reach out to us and we can discuss how how that works. But yeah, any brand to really recognize that we all want the same thing. We don't want an unlivable planet, preferably sooner rather than later. And for that to happen, we need to, yeah, enact systemic change. And one of the major ways you do that is by uh, pushing for good and timely regulation. And if the industry is is backing it and is behind it, it's more likely to be well-designed than if it's just pushed for by, um, you know, the likes of NGOs.
0: And so we talked a little bit about regulators. We talked about brands. What do you think consumers have to do in this space? Because there might be some consumers listening and they're quite frustrated because they don't have necessarily the power or the capital. And so what do you think consumers should do?
1: Yeah, I mean, consumers have a, a huge amount of power. I think it can be quite poorly articulated by the prevalent consumption-based model that the only way that you can act as a consumer is to try and consume yourself out of the crisis. You know, buy more of the right kind of stuff and less of the wrong kind of stuff. That, to a certain extent, that's true, but I think we fundamentally have to question again overconsumption. Do you need it? Can you wear what you've got more? Buy secondhand. If you do need to buy stuff. And then really doing your research and and possibly spending a bit more if you need to buy a a new item of clothing, making sure that it's something that you're going to wear at least 80 times, that you can repair at the end of life, that it's something that you feel strongly about as an item, you feel a kind of like social attachment to. So it's something that you then might hand down to somebody else or hand across to somebody else. So, yeah, making, making conscious choices where you have to make a choice to buy something new and then above and beyond wearing the clothes that you've got and not falling into the trap that the fashion industry has set for you, which is buy yourself out of the crisis by buying these spuriously green claim clothing. <laughs>
0: Yes, totally. And I would also say if consumers want to take it to the next step, just demanding transparency from brands, really lobbying if you can as well. Like that's definitely something if you want to be more active that you can do too.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know, there are so many amazing organizations and small brands and NGOs working on these issues that all need your voice. You know, I can't do the work that I do without the support of of concerned citizens who also want the same thing and concerned brands. So yeah, using your our collective power on things like social media or your political power to lobby your local representatives is an extremely um, important part of the mix.
0: Yes. And then the last stakeholder I wanted to touch on was investors. So there is more money coming to the space, which is good. But I find that investors are generally still very profit focused as you know, they are wired to be. But do you have any recommendations or things you wish investors would see in the space?
1: Yeah. So investment is hugely needed in some areas. So for example, Currently fiber to fiber recycling technology, which has to be part of the future sustainable fashion mix is woefully underfunded. There's a lot of companies doing interesting things um, around like cellulosic fibers, so things like viscose and lyocell and tensile and recycling textile waste into new fiber. Again, it's small and it won't meet the demand that will be for recycled fibers. So that needs a huge amount of invest- investment. I've caveated the fiber to fiber recycling in, uh, in synthetics. Like it, it, Could work, but I don't think it's going to happen in a reasonable um, timescale. So I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the. It does need investment, but I think there's a huge number of environmental issues there, not least microplastics, that have to be focused on and ruled out at the start before we pile on that that train. Yeah, and then there's another dynamic at play, which is how much do investors keep the incumbents in a state of play. Uh, so there's been quite a lot of pressure on the likes of H&M and, and Zara. I'm going to keep bringing those up, but just they're just very recognisable to compete with the likes of Shein and Boohoo, who are able to undercut them on price. And you know, Shein got a hundred billion dollar private market valuation um, and makes millions and millions of, of dollars every every month. And you know, they're this this is what's leading the charge for the brands to copy, rather than a, a nice sustainable paradigm that they say that they're, they're heading towards. So H&M will say things like they they want to um, halve their carbon emissions, but double their sales by 2030, which is all well and good, but it's really hard to see how they're going to do that when their um, investors are saying that you need to be more like Sheehan um because otherwise that's just gonna be snapped up you know they're just gonna snap up the market so yeah it's it's um i'm not really sure what i'm saying investors should do in that side because it's it's flippant to just be like well make more sustainable investments or don't do that but that's not realistic there's a huge problem of greenwash in the investment community as well most of esg is completely meaningless i don't know if you saw the uh, head of uh, responsible investing at hsbc the other day today um with ft moral money and essentially, um, I think it was a really valuable interview to give. It you know sent some shockwaves, and, and people were sort of up in arms about what he said. But I think it actually revealed the true face of responsible investing. Um, but they actually just don't, you know, their timeframes are short and therefore meaningless to so tackling climate crisis. They don't really believe in what they're doing. They are just about making money. So if something like Shein comes along and promises a, a lot of money to be made, then that's where they're going to follow. It, yeah, it's it's a bit of a depressing outlook. Um, I'm not an expert in in kind of sustainable finance. So I'm not entirely sure what to do about it, but I'm sure, um, yeah, I'd welcome anybody getting in touch and and, uh, having a discussion about that.
0: Yes, sustainable finance is also a space that's so interesting because it's definitely rampant with greenwashing as well and people that just don't take the time to educate themselves and figure out what's actually important to track. And I've heard sustainable financiers if you will say that they're profit focused but also sustainability focused but i haven't really seen the action there so it is really frustrating but maybe the call to action here is just to reframe what you're looking at when you're looking at investment opportunities right like it's not just profit but also hopefully you can extend your time horizon a little bit and think about other things like carbon emissions or the amount of waste like other metrics should be entering into play and you know, we'll see if that happens in a timely manner. But right now, it definitely is definitely frustrating.
1: Yeah, and I think that time frame piece is super important because a lot of these, yeah, you know, there's a huge risk of stranded assets, and, and stranded assets is a is a term that's commonly used in the kind of oil and gas extraction um, area. So, is this massive new plant that you're building out is that going to be able to continue to deliver a profit? By the time that we're in a future of a new energy mix and possibly like more restringent it's more stringent regulation against extraction so is it just going to make you a loss in the future but i think you can also think about stranded assets across different industries so in the fast fashion industry um in, in plastics certainly because that's all part of oil and gas in the food sector for sure and if you can stranded assets only make sense when you're thinking about really long term not even really long term like 10 years rather than three to five years and so i think part of that Part of what's missing as well in the investment community is education. So a lot of ESG decisions are being made by people who really aren't, are quite new to the space, not their fault necessarily, but people are hopping on ESG as the latest bandwagon without really that much um, expertise about sustainability. You know, they've not been working in it for very long. I mean, I haven't, and that's been 10 years. (laughs) So it's it's an education piece. It's a timeframes piece. It's complicated, very complicated. Yes,
0: for sure. And so I did want to end on more of a positive note, but are there any innovations or anything in the industry that you're really excited about?
1: Yeah, so there's the recycling stuff around cellulosics. That is really exciting. That's really positive news. There's a growing, there's a growing recognition that regulation is a fundamental part of the piece. We really saw that at this summit in in Denmark. Good conversations around that. There are Very important and difficult conversations about green, about degrowth, sorry, not green growth. Well, green growth as well, challenging that paradigm and models that really bring a kind of degrowth concept into the mainstream. I think that's something I'm always excited about and always looking out for. And then also just the level of energy that is around the kind of campaigning and activism space, challenging and calling out brands. You know, this year at the summer, there were quite a few critical voices, myself included, invited into the room. And I do feel like we were heard. So I think that's really important. It's just whether we have time um, to still be having these conversations versus actually taking action. So yeah, there's a lot to be hopeful of. And I think for people listening in terms of what you can do, there is a, you know, fashion has always been so entwined with activism and with making yourself heard. And I think there is something quite rebellious and quite revolutionary about taking power back into yourself like buying secondhand clothes only you know repairing your clothes I'm wearing ripped jeans right now and like they're not intentionally ripped they're ripped because I climbed over a fence and ripped them but I like them so I'm (laughs) I'm keeping them on so yeah I feel that there is something kind of rebellious in, in doing that and not just doing the easy thing which is going to your going online or going to your store and buying a new pair for for very little money.
0: Yes, totally. And just quickly, for folks that don't know what degrowth is or haven't heard of the concept, do you mind explaining?
1: For me, degrowth is really about like fundamentally addressing this paradigm of that we need constant economic growth, um, and that you know what are we growing into? What's the end product of all this all this growth? Um, you know, if we look at nature, nature exists in, in cycles, they are they're planned cycles, they happen every year, they allow for all sorts of different ecosystems and organisms within it to flourish. Sometimes it grows, sometimes it fades, um, but it's all on a kind of sustainable trajectory. And I think if we start thinking about our economy and the, the businesses, and the organisms within that in more of a, a cyclical way, in more of a natural cycles way, for me, that is, that is um, part of the debate around degrowth so like some people refer to it as like a steady state economy so something that is is on a yeah on a, on a cyclical path that is not just geared towards growth at all costs and it's a it's a hard and emerging conversation and i think it's one of the things you know if you if you'd want to know like what i think at the cutting edge of the conversation right now in fashion is it's conversations about degrowth so i'm sure other people would have very different definitions it's something i certainly need to um to kind of educate myself on more and any examples any like real world examples we're seeing of that I think can really help us um yeah work out what this looks like in the real world
0: yes totally it's a really interesting space because for so long it's all about scaling increasing sales increasing production and now it's like hold on let's pause and see how we can do this differently
1: yeah. And I think the, the current model is just like very, um, there's kind of vicious spikes of growth and recession. And like, you know, it will all average out in the end, because if we continue on the growth at all cost model right now, degrowth will come naturally because we'll overshoot planetary boundaries. So like, how do we do that with intention right now to avoid that catastrophe?
0: And so what's next then for the Changing Markets Foundation? Is there anything coming up that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so we launched a website called greenwash.com earlier this year, and that was looking at different greenwashing tactics from the fashion industry. And we've found that it's been a really useful tool to educate policymakers, brands and and consumers. We're expanding that out to plastics at the end of the month. Um, So that's something to look out. And we're revamping the website Um, and we're kind of building out social media on that to try and make a bit more of a community around it and, and help people to identify greenwashing where they see it um so that's all at at greenwash.com then we're continuing we've got a lot of really interesting research in the pipeline in the fashion campaign a lot of it looking at the waste trade and yeah i can't say too much about it now but it it is super exciting and um, something to keep an eye out for over the rest of this year
0: that's definitely exciting i'm excited to see that and so last but not least but how can everyone stay in touch and support the changing market foundation
1: Sure. Yeah. So Changing Markets, we're on uh, all, all major platforms at Changing Markets. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. And yeah, we've got our new um, greenwash.com channels on Twitter and on Instagram.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, George, for coming on. You shared so many valuable insights, and I'm sure people will have a lot to take away and think about.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, share it to your Instagram stories and tag us at Recloseted. Make sure you subscribe to our Recloseted radio podcast on your preferred podcast platform so that new episodes are automatically downloaded and you don't miss any of our free resources. Lastly, don't forget to rate our podcast five stars and leave us a positive review. That really helps us and continues to allow us to provide this podcast for free. Together, Let's write the harmful fashion industry.